All of my books have been inspired then by something ripped from the headlines. In the case of Look For Me, that family situation we see a couple times a year. It is almost like a family annihilation, but there'll be one survivor, generally a teenager. I was drawn to it as a writer, as in real life, you have a 50-50 chance. Half of the time, the teenagers sadly assisted in the murder of their own family. Maybe a teenage daughter who parents didn't approve of the boyfriend. The other half of the time, the family is murdered to kidnap the daughter. So when I went to talk to my detective about this, we actually had to mop out the house. We had to talk about each member of the family. He's like, before he could even start, we had to nail down all the particulars of the scene because it really does make a difference. And then at one point, I'm like, I'm doing a fundraiser for my Humane Society. Some people have paid money to have their dogs in the book. He's like, really? I'm like, yes. So the family will have these two spaniels. He's like, that makes all the difference. Everyone's going to want to try to find the dogs. That's just human psychology. Dogs are helpless. People want to help the dogs, you know, but we're kind of scared of teenagers. Hi, this is Tina Jordan from the New York Times Book Review. You're listening to thriller writer Lisa Gardner, whose most recent novel was Look For Me, as she describes how detailed and how granular her research is, the extent to which she dives into the psychology of law enforcement. I've always been a fan of her novels, and this last week, for Making a Killing, a special bonus edition of the Book Review Podcast, I had a chance to talk to her and four of her fellow thriller writers, Lee Child, Megan Abbott, Lisa Scottolini, and Meg Gardner, all in town for the annual Thriller Fest convention, about what kind of research they do, where their ideas come from, whether they outline, what they do when they've written themselves in a corner. Sure, they share some similarities, but what struck me the most was how different their approaches are. But first, back to Lisa Gardner and all that research. Unlike most of my readers out there, I want to understand how it works. And I like to come up with puzzles, and I don't know the answer to them, so I need to learn. So for the case of the body farm, I wanted my police to discover remains, have a logical reason, because I think in a book, the police should always be smart, to think they were the remains of a missing child, when in fact, they're not. But I needed the science of that to work out. So again, no one's being stupid. No one's made a mistake. There's very logical reasons this would mm-hmm. happen. And the best place to get that answer was to go to the body farm. So I did. <laughs> and the body farm is run by, wait, which organization? Is it the, is it the it's, CIA? It's the University of Tennessee. Oh, okay. It's the their School of Anthropology. And there's actually several in the United States now. Real life to me just blows fiction out of the water. I wanted to burn the remains thinking that would meant they were not identifiable. Right. So for a basic forensic anthropologist to graduate, they have these shoe boxes filled with cremated remains, and they have to be able to reach in, randomly pull out a piece. And it looks like a dried sponge. The organic matter has been burned out. It's definitely a very porous kind of hardened sponge. And based on whatever random piece they pull out, be able to do gender, approximate age, and in many cases, they have a good guess at occupation. Like it's stuff that for you and I just seems like total voodoo. Gardner isn't the only one who leans heavily on research. Lisa Scottolini, whose most recent book was After Anna, 
does as well. Quick example, in one of the thrillers, I had a, a murder set in the Third Circuit chambers in a, in a courthouse, and there are security cameras there. And I thought, oh, no, well, I'm going to have to deal with this because that whatever murder took place in that chambers is going to be on film. So I went to the guys in the courthouse and I said, uh, so show me the security cameras. And they're like, yeah. I said, well, you would see who went in. They go, well, no, because there's only two of us and there's 19 screens. So we're not really watching. I'm like, oh, that that's interesting. That's I'll put that in. Need, right. And then I said, but then you would have the tapes. And they go, this is the federal government. We do not have the, we don't have the money for tape. <laughs> we don't have tapes in these things. You're like, really? Now, I was secretly thinking in my head, I'll have to account for that. And when I went down to do the research, that was the chapter I had in mind. I completely found that that was not the case. Worked even better for the story. Was actually literally true, which is the best thing of all. Right. Because you never want anybody to read this who works in the federal courthouse and goes, are you really trying to sell me they have tapes in those cameras? Because we all know they don't. But both Lee Child, author of the Reacher novels, and Meg Gardner, who writes the Unsub series, say there's such a thing as doing too much research that your narrative will suffer if you sweat every last curve in the road. Get the big stuff right. The, the most helpful thing an editor ever told me was I was trying to find a, a, a spot in a book to set a scene, and it had to be along a twisty road because there was going to be a hit-and-run accident. And I drove up and down and up and down and up and down the actual road with my children in the back seat of the car, and they were, like, ready to, to club me and drive off the side of the cliff themselves. But I finally wrote to my editor, and I said, I can't find the curve. There is no curve on this road like I need. And she said, just make it up. It's fiction. And I said, but what if somebody writes in and nitpicks it? And she goes, if somebody has taken the time to read your book and nitpick it, be glad you've got readers. Not only is Lee Child not big on research, he's really not big on plotting his novels out in advance either. In fact, he's famous for just sitting down at his desk every September the 1st and starting to write. You know, the legend is that I have no idea, no plan. And that is sort of true. I mean, I usually have a feel for, right. you know, what is the season? What is the location? What is the landscape? To be very pretentious about it, what a composer would say was the key. Are they going to do this in C major or are they going to do it in E flat minor? Big decision for a composer. And I guess it's the same kind of decision for me. What is the feel of the book? And maybe I have half an idea about something that might or might not happen in the book. But beyond that, I really don't. So yeah, I sit down on the 1st of September and just see what happens, which is to me a lovely way to do it. I'm automatically interested. Every single day I sit down to write and I'm thinking, wow, I just can't wait to find out what happens next, which is what I hope the reader will be too. Right. I mean, if you're not entertained, they're not going to be entertained. Exactly. If, right? I, if, if I'm bored and, and just typing out a pre-planned outline, that's going to show through. The reader's going to be bored. I like inventing it as I go along because to me, I mean, I get the same shock the reader gets. Wow. You know, I definitely did not see that coming. And the really funny thing for me, though, is, you know, afterward, a reader will say, oh, I had it all figured out by page 50. And I think, <laughs> really? I didn't. <laughs> when it comes to writing, Lisa Scottolini operates a lot like Lee Child. I have no outline. You know, when people say, do you know how it ends? I don't know how it middles. I don't know anything. <laughs> right? But I know the beginning. So in Feared, for example, here's this all-female law firm who right. I've been writing about for 14 years. And I just said to myself one day, you know, they're an all-female law firm, although they have one guy who they recently hired. They have a token male. They have a token. <laughs> and they get sued for reverse sex discrimination. And I go, well, that could happen. Now what? Now what? Now what? 
And that's how I'm writing a book every time. Now what? What would they do? And isn't that a little bit like, like life? For Megan Abbott, whose most recent novel is Give Me Your Hand, the process is more complicated, and frankly, it's a lot messier, too. Like a lot of thriller writers, she often gets her first ideas from a snippet she sees in the news. That kindles something in her brain, something she turns over and over again to try to understand if there's a book in it. It's, it's often something I read in the newspaper. It really is like some small, real human, strange detail. Like with Give Me Your Hand, it was two teenagers, one of them confessing something to the other one and how it, the, the person who heard the confession, how it haunted them. And it was like a small detail. And I, I never thought about that way, about that way. And I didn't know how a book was going to get built around it. But I kept thinking about what it means when someone tells you a secret or confesses something to you and, and the burden it could be. And so I kept knocking around my had for years, actually, till I finally decided to, to write something about it. Sometimes, Abbott says, she just starts writing, not sure whether the idea is going to work or not. So I have to sort of build the world each time. And I have nothing to start with, but I never really know if a book is even going to work. Sometimes I'm 100 pages in. So often a ba- I've wow. abandoned several books 100 pages in. So, you know, once I'm committed to the book, I have the general three-act structure in my head, but that's about it. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm often wrong about what will work. And then, and then I have to do that tragic thing where you delete it all. Where you go back and delete. Yeah, because yeah. also some writers just, they get it right the first time. And I don't know how that happens either because there's so many nuances in books like the ones you write. Like, of course you would get it wrong some of the time, right? Right, yeah. I always start out with, Try to have characters that are sort of mysterious to me, and then I'm trying to figure them out as I go. So, and then sometimes I, I hit a wall with them, and, and that's what those are the ones I abandon. But I don't really know what they'll ultimately do, and sometimes things do change. Often have a character who's meant to be the protagonist, sort of the the good the good girl, and then she usually turns out not to be somehow. So that, that's the only pattern I can detect. In, in my books is that often the protagonist and the antagonist, if we can speak of those terms, switch places usually. So that's why if I didn't have the crime engine, I would be in trouble because, you know, uh, I don't know where they would take me. But like once there's a body in the room, you know, like, that, you know, what are we going to do with the body? You know, and that's sort of the greatness of crime fiction to me is that, you know, like we've got to figure this out. And, and that helps a lot. I am interested in subcultures and these kind of hothouse environments. That, and figuring out how these worlds work. So I, I'm always looking at the, the sort of subculture that hasn't been explored yet a lot or the perspective in that world that we haven't seen a lot. Meg Gardner, on the other hand, is one of those people who absolutely, positively has to have an outline. Oh, I used to sit down and start writing and it was an absolute disaster. <laughs> I I would just veer so far off course that, you know, nobody could have rescued me with a machete and a helicopter or, you know, a submarine or whatever. So I outline. I write up a treatment of the story. I used to write maybe a two-page outline of of the story. And the the more books I've written, the more helpful I find it to really work through uh, the beginning, the, the major turning points to get the ending right. As I outline, so if I know that the ending is right, I can look back at the start and see if I've actually started at the right place in the right way. I mean, that makes sense. I don't know how anybody sits down and starts writing and makes it end up in the right place. I think for some people can do that amazingly, but I think they are people who have an incredibly strong internal story sense. 
So as they sit down to write, it's intuitive as far as where to where to develop the right. story and when it needs to turn and so forth. But that's not me. that's most interesting to me as a reader is all the different paths these writers were on before they began writing thrillers. Lee Child famously got fired from his job as a TV producer and then picked up a pen. And Meg Gardner's interest in crime started back when she was a kid in California. I lived in Southern California and was old enough to take a look at the newspaper and see a police drawing of the Zodiac Killer, a gunman with a black executioner's hood, bizarre symbols on the front of it, and asked my dad who this was. I, you know, I was a Catholic, you know, schoolgirl. I thought that uh, if anybody did bad things, they had to have some motive like the deadly sins, greed, right. lust, whatever. But he said, that's the Zodiac. And I said, what does he do? And he said, he kills people because he likes to. And I could still remember the look on my dad's face of being upset to have to tell me that something like this existed in the world. And then that blank face that nobody could ever identify who was still out there. I was a very imaginative child. It, it freaked me out. Lisa Scottolini minds her years as a lawyer for her novels, often down to the tiniest detail. I clerked for two judges. I, both judge, I would say, you know, what, what's the hardest part of this job? And they said sentencing people. So when you do that, you know, it's like a detective having kind of gallows humor. Judges can be really funny and lawyers can be. And there's a lot of tricks. Like I always sort of like the tricks. I had one that I famously put in a book where I am. Things were going really badly for us on a cross-examination. And I could see it was bad. And I was sitting second chair because I was young. So I'm at the table. My other guys up questioning. And I just said, this is going bad. What can I do? And there was a big pitcher of ice water. And I just freaking knocked it right off the table. <laughs> Honestly, it was brilliant. I just pretended. The jury looked because it's sort of a story. You're the, they see the narrative. You're the young female lawyer at the table. You did something stupid. The ice went everywhere. The water went everywhere. Now, I did not anticipate this, but this judge who was terrific, Judge Katz, stood up, was very particular about the table. He's like, my table. He jumps up. He forgets the cross-examination. They make a whole scene. They, they dismiss the jury. They send him out of the room. I'm like, this is the best move I ever had in my life. The partner said to me later, you're genius. I said, yes, thank you, I am. Please remember that at race time. For her part, Lisa Gardner started out as a romance writer. Well, I've always been drawn to suspense. Even back when I started out as a romantic suspense novelist, there had to be a dead body. I don't know what that says about me as a person, <laughs> but if there's not a corpse, I cannot produce a novel. <laughs> what I love about having started out my career writing romantic suspense was in the romance books, character matters. People are reading not for the what happened, but who it happened to. I feel like you're very interested not only in the whole question of like what might make somebody a psychopath. I mean, are people born bad? Are they made that way? One of the things that drew me to thrillers, and I love to read them, which is how I got into writing them, is I think all of us are drawn to that question, what is the nature of evil? Are killers born or made? And one of the things I feel like I have done 
with kind of each of my books is there isn't an answer to that question. It really is a spectrum. You can come up with examples, like many experts will say, Ted Bundy is clearly the example of the serial killer that was just born. It didn't matter what was going to happen. He was going to go one direction and one direction only. Lee Child has always been in the storytelling business, and his character, Reacher, is imbued with quite a bit of his own personality, especially his ability to fight which Child traces back to his own boyhood. It was uh, an industrial city, not very pleasant, not very uh, refined in any way where I grew up. And every single thing instinctively was settled with violence. It was just always a fight, always. And I was doubly unlucky in that sense because my folks were very aspirational for their boys. They wanted us to do well. You know, they were not immigrants, but it was almost like a classic immigrant situation. You know, they wanted the education for their children. And if you were doing well in school or were seen as ambitious, that was like having an extra target painted on your back. And then, of course, the ultimate disaster was that I won a scholarship to a very prestigious high school on the nice side of town. So for twice a day, once in the morning, I had to fight my way out of the neighborhood and then... (laughs) In the I'm afternoon, sorry, not funny. <laughs> fight my way back in. No, it was great. I loved it. I was good at it. I was huge. I was a big kid. So I said to Child, let's put Reacher in a hypothetical situation. He's got four guys coming at him. Now what? How do you write that scene? You know, it's a physical task that has got to be completed as efficiently as possible. And it has a psychological component, too. The one with the biggest or scariest weapon is going to feel the most secure. But is that weapon actually useful in a close quarters situation? So should we leave him and take this other guy first? It's mainly about making up your mind. I mean, that's the problem with fighting, that you get into a confrontation on the street and you're unsure. You think, what is going to happen here? Is it going to go bad? Should I do this? Should I do that? You don't have any time for that. You've just got to make your mind up in a split second. You know, the classic rule is if you're faced by four guys, make it three guys instantly. Then make Uh it two guys. And then, you know, situation normal. I asked all five riders what it was like to be holed up in the Grand Hyatt with hundreds of other people who spend most of their waking hours crafting the ideal murder. Meg Gardner had the perfect answer. It's only a problem if you're like sitting in the restaurant and some and somebody, as once happened to me and a friend in a, in a cafe, we were talking about a, a scene. So what happened? And were- so like we were talking about a character and, you know, like, well, PJ is going to be heavily drugged when, you know, when they when they kidnap him. And <laughs> then they, they've got that boat tied up at the pier. And, and I said, and he's not going to be coherent enough to, to know what's happening. And this guy got up from the table behind us and like threw down his napkin <laughs> and goes... This poor kid needs your help, not your, not your <laughs> insults. And he walked out because he thought it was real. Well, at least he didn't call the police. True. I think Lee Child sums up the writer experience the best. You write a book, it's like inviting the reader into the back of a, a comfortable limousine for an exciting drive. And the reader doesn't care about, you know, the exact tuning of the suspension components. They don't want you to jack it up on a hoist and show them how it works. They Mm -hmm. just want the ride. So invite them in, give them a glass of champagne, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. And just say, buckle up, here we go. That's it for us here at Making a Killing. I'd like to thank Megan Abbott, Lisa Gardner, Meg Gardner, Lee Child, and Lisa Scottolini for generously donating their time. Please remember to look for the special thriller edition of the New York Times Book Review. 
which is on sale this Sunday, July 22nd.